Hello, Internet. Don't freak out. Yes, I'm talking to you, the listener, right now. Today, we're doing something a little different. This is a very special episode of the podcast. Brady set up something cool that we actually recorded in person together and filmed. That's right. There's video. And it's video of objects. And we're going to be talking about those objects during today's show. Now, there will be photos and links in the description of today's show, but if you want more, we've actually released this episode as a video at the same time on the Hello Internet YouTube channel. So if you want to watch the video live, you can either search for the Hello Internet channel on YouTube or click the link in the description below. And for those afraid of certain kinds of spoilers, the video is close-up shots of our hands mostly, although Brady does get in the way of the camera sometimes. But don't worry, this is primarily a podcast, so if you just want to listen to this episode, you are already doing that, presumably, and so you can just keep listening. Either way, on to this very special episode of Hello Internet. I'm actually looking at your face, and we're in the same room, and this is completely freaking me out. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm really freaking out, because I can literally reach over the microphone and touch your face. (laughs) Do you know what's strange? It, while I've been setting up, I haven't actually looked up at you yet. And now right. I've just looked at you and I feel really weird. So mm-hmm. if it's all right with you, I'm just going to look at my feet the whole time. We have probably spent more hours talking to each other, not looking at each other, than in than hours actually looking at each other. That, I mean, that, that definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let's explain why we are in the same place. Because this is a very special episode of Hello Internet. We're doing something completely different. And we are sitting in an amazing place. I'll let you tell people where we're sitting because I've got a suspicion I'm going to be doing a lot of talking today. So so I'm going to give you every opportunity I can. (laughs) We are in the Royal Society building right now. Just just outside the window, we're actually sitting in the president's office in in the Royal Society, and looking out the window is on to uh, the, the mall, as English people say it, or as I would say it, the mall. And that's not a shopping mall, by the way. Yeah, it's it's the big street. If you so so down the road from us is Buckingham Palace, just slightly up the road is Trafalgar Square. And you may hear a lot of ambient noise because minutes before we started recording, it was the changing of the guard. So we could hear all of the horses going down the street just in front of the building. So we are in the president's office in the Royal Society. I think you're downplaying this whole president's office thing. Like in this is the oval office of science. Like, it, like in terms of ceremonial science jobs, president of the Royal Society here in London, I can't think of a ceremonial science job that is a bigger deal. I can't think of one. Can you think of one? It's not the biggest deal in science. Like winning a Nobel Prize is probably a bigger deal for a scientist. And right. by the way, the current president of the Royal Society <laughs> did win a Nobel Prize. <laughs> it's uh, well, a duper. Yeah. But, but like in terms of like, you know, like, like posh, jobs i think president of the royal society is it and we are in although it's not oval shaped i'm calling this the oval office of science and you could almost reach out and touch his equivalent of the resolute desk we are looking at his desk right now it does kind of look like the resolute desk it does a bit it does a bit so the current president of the royal society is sir paul nurse nobel prize winner nobel prize in medicine big expert on cells and such things, genetics, does a lot of cancer research now. He is away today. He's not sitting here watching us, <laughs> thank goodness, because that would make an awkward situation even more awkward. Yes, yes. Um, so we've been given his office mainly because it's one of the quieter rooms in the building, and we're going to do something very special uh, very shortly. But first of all, we should deal with a couple of little housekeeping matters, I believe. 
Firstly, because this is a special edition of Hello Internet, we are not going to be doing our usual follow-up and banal talking for an hour about what happened in the episode before. <laughs> no, it, it, to, to be in a place like this and then to do, oh, let's just talk about whatever happened last time for 45 minutes, it, it would seem almost disrespectful to the, o- the office and the room that we are in. <laughs> and uh, to also aggravate that is that we just put the last episode live last night. So yeah. I, we haven't even had a chance to kind of really go through much of the feedback or anything. So we're skipping our normal follow-up, yep. which is probably a good thing to do. So, so follow-up from episode 39 and this episode, which I think will be episode 40. Might as well. Yeah, will take place in episode 41. So for those diehard fans who love listening to us go over everything in minutia, uh, you're going to have to wait. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Mm-hmm. Because we're dealing just with uh, just with Royal Society business today. Now, I want to talk a bit more about where we are. Let's talk about the presidency of the Royal Society first. Okay. Because I just want people to understand what a big deal this job is. And I made a couple of notes here of some past presidents of the Royal Society. Let me just hit you with a few names, and I want to see if any of these names mean anything to you. This is from the long list of previous presidents. No, I just want to interrupt you already, and I already feel like 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 you have prepared for today. I have shown up and I am feeling massively outgunned right now. You are. You have you have notes, you have preparations, you have people you have people helping you today and and I just feel like oh god, I don't know what I'm exactly You have in no for. idea what's happening. And that's, and as you'll find out that's part of the point. We're deliberately dropping gray in it today. But let me hit him with a few names and see if this is not a test. This it feels not, like a test. None of this will be a test. It feels like a but test. But I just want to hit you with a few names because okay. I want you to understand the power of the office you're in at the moment. Mm-hmm. Christopher Wren. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Ring a bell? Yeah. Architect St. Paul's? Yes. Right. Superstar architect of London. St. Paul's Cathedral, which is that big domed church you always see when you see the iconic pictures of London. He was a president of the Royal Society. A little guy called Isaac Newton? Hmm. No, Sounds that's... familiar. It's ringing yeah. a bell. Yeah. Ringing a bell, Isaac Newton. Something with apples, maybe? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Own an orchard? Orchard? It, <laughs> it's, it's always apple with you. <laughs> Yeah, I think I know Isaac Newton. You might, I don't know if you know this one, but it will mean a lot to our Australian friends and it means a lot to me. The longest serving president of the Royal Society is a guy called Joseph Banks. Does that, would you know that one? You might not. Mm. I wouldn't blame you if you didn't. I, I can't say anything no, about this person. He's a botanist, and, but he was, a, he was quite a distinguished botanist. He had a lot to do with Australia and he was on our $5 note for a long time. So mm. he means a lot to me, but I'll let you off that one. Thank you. Humphrey Davy. Oh, I should know that. This is where it starts to feel like a test. I know this oh, name. Oh, no, no, no. I just want to see if you know the name. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I know the name, but tell me. What, what's Humphrey Davies? Oh, no, no. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. People can look it up. That's no, I want to know right now. That, they can look it up. You have it right there. You're not going to no, tell no, me? No, 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 no. Lord Raleigh? Raleigh Scattering? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah? I think past, past president? I think it's the name I, I always read is Rayleigh. Yeah, that probably is correct. <laughs> I'm Australian. My pronunciation of everything is terrible. Ernest Rutherford? Rutherford, of Rutherford, course. yes, another yeah, president. Yep, Bragg, mm-hmm. Flory, Flory, I don't know. Flory, Flory penicillin. Again, I'm being biased there because he has an Adelaide connection. That's where I'm from. But Flory was involved with penicillin research. So, wait, you're thinking of Fleming? Yeah, I'm, that's, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of Fleming as yeah. well. I'm thinking He's, of. Yeah, he gets a lot. Of, he gets a lot of credit too. But because I'm from Adelaide, we big up Flory. Another past president. He also on Australian money. I'm very biased towards people who. <laughs> I was gonna say, I can see already where this is going. Well, when you're young mm-hmm. and like you want money and you can't have it, and your parents, like in their wallet and purses, have 
like notes which you dream of having, like a $50 note or right. even a $5 note. Right. The people on those notes, the pictures on them, become these iconic people. I'm sure it's for you with like presidents on your American money. They're like, so now when I walk around the Royal <laughs> Society and I see these portraits of these people's faces, I'm like, oh, that's the guy that was on the $50 note. <laughs> oh, how I would have killed for a $50 note back in the day. Anyway. Okay, so, so Fleming, though, ne- never a president of the uh, Royal no, Society. No, I, don't, I do not believe Fleming was, right. but Flory but, was. But, but well, that's what I'm saying. So Flory, Flory involved was. in penicillin and president of the Royal Society and Australian connections. Yeah. It's like a hat trick. I think I don't know if he won the Nobel Prize. That was Prize. a sports reference, by the way. It was. Well done. Just wanted to point that out. Well done. I was preparing for that. So having so having gotten you all excited and talked about these past presidents and we're sitting in the, the presidential office, now comes the slightly disappointing part. Those presidents did not sit in this office. Ah. Uh. No. <laughs> they sat in previous offices in previous buildings because the Royal Society has not been in the building we're in for all that long. We're in a building called uh, Carlton Terrace House, I believe, or Carlton House Terrace. Yeah, it's Carlton Terrace House. I think I think it's one of these things. It's and another it's, one of these houses. Everything in the is. UK is a house. It's a grand old building. Again, I have a little bit of information. <laughs> you, you've prepared. <laughs> I have a bit of information. When we were in the fellows room before, having a, having a, a cup of tea before we started, I noticed you ordered a very specific type of tea. Mm-hmm. What did you order? I ordered Earl Grey tea. Earl Grey tea. Mm -hmm. Do you know this building used to be the house of Earl Grey? Did it really? Yeah. Earl Grey. (laughs) The Grey. (laughs) A a Grey even more famous than you. (laughs) Former Prime Minister of this country. He used to live in this building. Really? Mm. With Lady Grey. She also has a tea. Really? I didn't know. What's nicer out of Earl Grey and Lady Grey? I've I've actually never had Lady Grey tea. I just know that it exists. I've never had it. I've never had it. Anyway, so former former home of Earl Grey. Hmm. A number of prime ministers have lived in this building in the days of yore. Hmm. It was built on some gardens that used to be owned by someone called Prince Rupert. Hmm. Prince Rupert of Prince Rupert's Drop fame, which is a Mm -hmm. famous science experiment, which you made even more famous by allowing Destin to perform it in your hand, an exploding piece of glass in your hand. Yes, yes. That was at the Random Acts of Intelligence show in Alabama. Much against my better judgment, I did convince Destin to allow me to do his famous this glass explodes into a million pieces experiment with my hand wrapped around it. Did we talk about that last time? I cannot believe you let him do that. Did you know he was going to do that? We we discussed it beforehand, the possibility of it. Because you're so sort of safety conscious and I always think of you as quite... Not a risk taker. And then when, when Destin said, I'm going to explode this piece of glass, can I do it in your hand, CGP Grey? And you got up and said, yes. I, was, I almost fell out of my chair. Let's put it this way. If you had asked me, I would probably have said no. <laughs> <laughs> right? But like, Destin, if Destin asked me to, to walk across a, like a pit of fiery coals, I would, I would trust Destin enough that I would, I would put my safety in his hands. I don't know what to say to that. I don't, I'm just, I'm just telling you. Where I feel like Destin, Destin knows he's only going to be able to ask me for so many favors, maybe. So basically, if I want to get you to come on a trip to Everest, I just got to get Destin to ask you. Destin asking would make it more likely. But the reason that I'm willing to go along with Destin's requests is I feel very confident that he knew that was actually a safe thing to do. 
if you see what I mean. I don't know if Destin would vouch for the safety of an actual trip to Everest. Do you think I'm not a safe person? Like, I would put you in danger? I don't think you'd intentionally put me in danger, Brady. You think but I'd, I think I'd be reckless? I, I would. Reckless is such a strong word. But I think the call of adventure is louder in your mind than it is in my mind. And you might be more willing to overlook some things. I don't know. I kind of like the sound of that. So I'm going to let you say that. <laughs> I like that this call of adventure stuff. Yes, that's the way to put it. It ties in with my whole heart of nails image that I'm trying to work on at the moment. <laughs> with great success, it seems. Everyone seems to associate that saying with me now, which is quite ridiculous because I'm, I'm a bit of a lightweight. Anyway. So here we are, Carlton House. Another one final interesting piece of trivia. This used to be the German embassy but before the wars. And it was really interesting. Before World War I, I believe this was the German embassy, this part of the building we're in here. Mm-hmm. And obviously when the war kicked off, the Germans were quite politely actually asked to leave. So the building was sort of left empty. and it, But it was still considered German territory during World War I. And the British are so polite and were so respectful that they actually didn't do anything. And apparently when the Germans came back after the war and came back into the building, all their pipes and cigarettes and ashtrays and everything (laughs) were exactly as they left them. The building was completely untouched through the war, which was really interesting. World War II, just before World War II started, it sort of became the Nazi embassy and... So obviously that's not so good. Not and so good. No. They left during World War Two, and they didn't come back to this building after World War Two, and it was appropriated, and it's now a government-owned building and whatnot. But anyway, interesting fact: former German embassy, former Nazi embassy, now home of the distinguished Royal Society. And one other little interesting piece of trivia about it is there is actually the former German ambassador had a much-loved dog called Gyro, I believe. Oh yes, which died. And its gravestone is still here in what were the gardens. And you can actually go outside later on and see the gravestone of this old German dog. Oh, yeah? You'll have to show me. I will show you. Because, you know, I know you like dogs. I don't know how you feel about dead dogs, but... <laughs> but, but, but you know. Did Gyro have a Facebook page and, and slow motion videos? I don't. If it was my dog, it would have. But, <laughs> but I, don't think, I don't think the German ambassador was so big on social media. So, hmm. anyway. Well, that's probably why they lost the war. Whew, that's exhausting, all that trivia, isn't it? It's exhausting being in front of you. I know. I'm not going to lie. Like, this is very strange. I know. You, you still look a bit freaked out, so I'm hoping you'll chill outside. So I'm very relaxed. You're relaxed. I'm not relaxed. Now, I know you are a great lover of London. Mm-hmm. You often just walk the streets aimlessly. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Thinking about new ways to get things done, no doubt. <laughs> is this a part of London that you do much wondering? Like, are we... Are we in familiar territory here for you around this part of London? Yes, I, I would say I would say not the most familiar area, but more familiar than most. Uh, okay. I, so I, rank your most familiar areas. Like in your in your peak wandering times, what would you rank as the more familiar areas? The area that I'm most familiar with starts at Trafalgar Square and and heads over towards uh, London Bridge Station. So that, that little stretch I'm extremely familiar with. But I would say that the second most area is kind of Trafalgar Square and then working backwards through Green Park, which is what we're against right now, and then up into uh, Hyde Park as well. So that's an area that I'm really familiar with. Okay. So I'd say maybe second if I have to rank it. Second okay, well, it's, it's up there. So, and I know that you used to take photos of 
parts of London in another life. Like <laughs> yes. it, it became a bit of an <laughs> obsession of yours. Did you yes. ever photograph this building or anything around here? Or it's quite a famous old building. It's got a Wikipedia page. It does have a Wikipedia yeah. page. So would this? You, but you didn't. You never snapped this one in your in your days. I don't think that I did because this is slight. It's slightly off the main road. Yeah. It's it's just a little bit back. Uh, so I'm not sure that I ever did, but I'd have to I'd have to go back through all my Flickr photos back when I had time to actually have hobbies and things that served that served no purpose really. Like oh, I'll just wander around and take pictures because I have spare time. Uh, it's part of who you are. It's made it. I think that probably fed in quite a lot to what you became. You know, you sort of see that obsession with London and places and that. You know, I think I don't think you should feel bad about that era. No, I don't. I know I don't feel bad about it. I just think it's it's funny because I probably wouldn't. I always toy with the notion of, of getting back into photography, but I don't think it's, it's ever, it's not a, a real possibility. But yes, I'd have to look back through my old Flickr photographs and see if I ever did take a picture of this place. Okay. All right. Maybe we should come on to the point of today. Right. The reason we're here. The reason we're here. The re- as I said, the reason we're in the president's office has nothing to do with the presidency. It's just because it was one of the quieter rooms in the building and he happens to be out today. Right. But you know, I have a bit of an obsession with old objects indeed you do and i like a bit of science Mm -hmm. so what's happened is with a bit of help from my friends here particularly a gentleman named keith moore who i may mention again because keith is the head librarian here and is a fountain of knowledge sorry a fount of knowledge i should say people tell me off a fountain of knowledge he's a fount of knowledge very helpful he he has conspired with me to dig out some items of interest from the archives. There's an incredible archive here at the Royal Society. And I have dug out a number of items which I want to show to you. I just want to show them to you. All right. I don't know how you're going to feel about this because you famously are not a big fan of objects and stuff, but you like a bit of history. I feel like you always always misinterpret this. Go on, go on then, go again. <laughs> I always have to do this disclaimer. I am, I, I don't necessarily want objects in my house. I am happy that objects exist in the world. I am very happy that a place like this exists and that it archives all of the history of science, that it has all of these things. I really love that these places exist. I'm not hearing what word you say. All I'm thinking is this guy hates objects. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know that's all you hear. It's, I might as well be one of the parents in Charlie Brown right now. Every time I try to explain this, it's just wah, 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 wah. <laughs> you just hear nothing. You just hear nothing. I hear nothing. <laughs> so one by one, I am going to reveal objects to you. Okay. Now, we are recording a podcast. Mm-hmm. Podcasts do not lend themselves very well to visuals. I feel that we have a, a history, though, of doing subjects that are terrible in audio form, this is but, but plowing forward anyway. We do. So for those of you listening, we will do our best to really vividly describe what we're looking at with mm-hmm. our incredible mastery of the English <laughs> yes. language that we have exhibited yes. over, the, over the last year or so. We are trying something else. Mm-hmm. Hopefully this will have worked, but what's going to happen is you can look at pictures of these items as well through the show notes, mm-hmm. but possibly... And if you're not hearing me say this, we didn't do it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but if you are hearing me say this, we did do it. Mm-hmm. We are running a video camera on the table and we are going to put the items on the table and try and sync up the video somehow with 
the podcast. So you can look at these things as we look at them. So I don't know, mate, people can go to our YouTube channel. There'll be links and stuff and you can figure yeah. it out. You're bright people. You can figure it out. <laughs> so go, so if you are hearing this, <laughs> I like the way you say they're bright people. They can figure it out when we clearly haven't figured out yeah, what we're, we're doing. We're, at not, all right we're not quite so bright, right. but, but, um, you can go to the YouTube channel and kind of, for once, we're going to put this podcast up on YouTube at the same time as the podcast goes on iTunes. We don't normally do that. Norm- right. Normally, it's a month or two behind. But you can you can watch this podcast now and look at these items with us. But you don't need to. If you're on a plane, mm-hmm. Tim... <laughs> you can you will not need to see these items. We are going to describe them. Right. Or if you're performing surgery right now. Exactly. You don't need the nurse to bring in a monitor so that you can keep one eye on the video. Exactly. Exactly. This will be a, an audio first experience. Yeah, we're going to we we're, we're going to paint a picture. Right. And and our words are worth a thousand pictures. Yes. So, <laughs> let's do this. All right. I have some items. I haven't actually planned what order I'm going to show them to mm-hmm. you in. So I'm just going to make it up in my head now. I'm going to start with a bang. Okay. I know you've got to sort of save the best for last. But you're not going to do that. Well, I've got one I'm most looking forward to showing you, and I will save that for last because I'm really excited about this one. Okay. But I'm going to start with a bang as well and a real showstopper. I'm also starting with a bit of a banker, though, because... Mm -hmm. Gray, you have been to the Royal Society before with mm-hmm. me. Yeah, we talked you, about it on the podcast a while back. Yes, yes. And we talked about this. We talked about this. We went down into the archives. You normally are pretty low-key. Mm-hmm. You're not a guy who likes being photographed, from my experience. Mm-hmm. And when you saw this item, you insisted on getting to touch it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you, you asked me to take a photograph of you holding this item. Mm-hmm. So this is clearly an item that means something to you. Mm-hmm. And we've got it now, so oh, I'm, wow. so I'm going to go and get it, and I'm going to put it on the table, and I'm going to reset the camera so the people watching can see it, and then we're going to talk about this item. So let me go and get it. Brady's walking away. He's making exaggerated comical walking gestures. That's what Brady's doing. In the meantime, though, I'm very thirsty. I'm going to grab a quick drink of water. But the pro tip here is that if you have valuable items, you don't keep water in any place they could ever spill on them. So we have water physically separated from all of the objects we we have today. So I'm gonna go get my water. I have placed this item in front of you. Yes. Tell everyone what you see. Talk us through it, what the colors, what it's on, what it looks like. Paint a picture with with your famous syrupy voice. No, no pressure here. Uh, First, you have an excellent book stand here. I remember when we walked in the room, you were more impressed by this book stand. We're in a room full of paintings and memor- <laughs> And I remember we walked in and you went, oh, I love that book stand. <laughs> you, you never know what catches the eye. Yeah. But yes, we, we have a book stand, which is one of those kind of fancy ones where you can have a book open to two pages at once. It's a kind of thing that's in a museum where the book is tilted forward so that onlookers can gaze upon the magnificence of the book. And on this book stand, we have a very old-looking tan book. Yes, Brady's touching it right now. You're allowed to touch it. We're allowed to touch it. And we are, yeah. and we've been instructed to mm-hmm. touch it without gloves. Yes. 
This is deliberate. So mm-hmm. anyone who thinks we should... There's an item later on for which we will wear gloves. Oh. Yeah, but for this item, we are told gl- no gloves is better because we're going to leaf through the pages. And if you try and leaf through pages wearing gloves, mm-hmm. it increases the likelihood that you'll do something clumsy and rip a page. So mm-hmm. the archivists prefer you not to wear gloves when dealing with an item like this. So you are free to touch it, but continue describing it. So looking on the side, it is the manuscript of uh, Newton's Principia Mathematica. This is like the book of physics in my mind. This is like, this is the Bible. Yeah, I think, I think that is a, not, a, not a bad way to describe it because this, this book is the place where, at least in my mind, I've, I've never actually read the book. I have to I have no. to do a confession here. We're not going to assign the Principia as homework or no. anything. This is your getting things done. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. it's, like, it's actually not very interesting to read directly. We're waiting, <laughs> we're, we're waiting for the audiobook. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I hope they can get the author. Yeah. But yeah, so, so the Principia is the place where... I would describe it as, as physics kind of became a, like a real grown-up science because it's, it's the place where... Instead of just describing like we are now with words, the physical world. Oh, you know, let's let's describe all of these things. Oh, you know, if we roll a a boulder down a hill, the boulder gets faster as it goes on. This is the kind of state of science before this, which is it's good. It's better than nothing. But the the Principia is the place where Isaac Newton brought the power of mathematics to bear upon lots of problems with motion in particular in the physical world and it is where the calculus uh was i mean someone else co-invented it at the same time this is this is the way ideas work but isaac newton uh, also independently came up with calculus and applied it to the science of how objects move if you learn physics today the subject of kinematics is where you tend to start that's where real physics begins you learn the Uh, All the physics students out there will know very well memorizing the kinematic equations, the five of them, and having to isolate one of the variables. All of that kind of stuff falls out of the Principia, and that that is where physics really starts, in my mind. Indeed. You you have summed it up beautifully. This is no ordinary Principia, though. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you about this one. So this is the manuscript. Mm -hmm. So it's handwritten. Mm-hmm. Isaac Newton's manuscript, handwritten. This is kind of like the final draft mm-hmm. before it was printed. This is the one that was sent to the, the printers and the compositors for them to then make sort of a typeset uh, proper printed copy. Mm. So I'm going to open it. I'll open up a few pages here. Here we go. Oh, man. So as you can see, all these pages we're looking at are handwritten. Now, these weren't handwritten by Isaac Newton himself because Mm -hmm. apparently Isaac Newton had pretty shoddy handwriting and he had an assistant called Humphrey Newton. Mm -hmm. It's ambiguous as to whether or not he's a relation and that. No one seems to really be sure as far as I can tell. But Humphrey Newton wrote this for Sir Isaac Newton Mm -hmm. and he has much better handwriting than Sir Isaac. But apparently Isaac Newton was always a bit... I'd be pissed off about Humphrey Newton because apparently he didn't know much about physics or mathematics, so he had no <laughs> idea what he was writing about. And I imagine that would lend itself mm-hmm. to mistakes. Right. So we're looking here at this final copy. But the thing that's really special about this is because this is like the final draft, mm-hmm. you'll see along the way here in the margins handwritten mm-hmm. notes, things that are underlined. Occasionally you'll see things that have been crossed out, little, mm-hmm. little notes here and there. 
You also see thumbprints. Uh, these, hmm. these, these inky thumbprints are probably from the compositors who are working in the printing press putting it together. You still, right. you still see all these messy thumbprints everywhere. But the handwritten notes and the corrections mm-hmm. are, right. are by the hand of two people. Mm-hmm. One of them is Sir Edmund Halley mm-hmm. of Halley's Comet fame, who was the man who was really instrumental in convincing Isaac Newton that, man, you need to get this thing published. So, mm-hmm. so, and he was a good friend of Newton. So Halley's made a few little comments and corrections. But the other, the other notes are by Sir Isaac Newton himself. So Sir Isaac Newton himself has written notes all over this document. Look at that. There's some spilled ink. <laughs> like there's, there's like ink blots on the pages. And this is like, it's so, it's so old and musty. It seems so alive to me in many ways. Do you like it? Oh, of course. I mean, this is, it is, it is interesting to, to be close to an object that an historical person has handled. And, and, and for me, turn a few pages, you should turn a few pages. For me, I, I have this particular feeling about history that it is, like I'm, I'm not always so interested in, in like the kings and the queens and the particular. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, there's just fingerprints everywhere from from the the printer. You know, you get the feeling of like this guy in a workshop somewhere, like yeah. you know, with like an apron, like constantly rubbing his hands on his apron. Like, oh god, we got to change this and got to change that. What is this rubbish? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What is this? I don't understand. I don't understand a word of this rubbish. Right. It's like getting things done. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, I think people like Isaac Newton. And other scientists are the truly important figures in history because they are the ones who advance civilization forward. Like with, without the progress of science, you would just always have different kings battling over territory in the mud forever using rocks and sticks or whatever, right? But, but when, you have, when you have things like calculus, when you have advancements made, that's how things get better. That's how things improve. And so I look at a lot of what people tend to focus on as history as like minor details that fall out of scientific and technological progress. So that's why this to me is like, is an amazing document to actually be able to touch with my hands like I'm doing right now because Isaac Newton touched it at one point. So that does, that does look at this. There's like bits being crossed out and the words rewritten and things like that all the way through. I'm mm. looking for one thing in particular, but I don't know if I'm going to find it. Oh, yeah. this, this is, it's a big book. It is, it is quite a big it's book. It's volume one of three. Yeah. The thing I don't quite understand, though, mm. well, I, I do understand because you just said so, but like Principia exists. You can go online and read it, and the polished final version with all the corrections and without the mistakes and without the thumbprints exists. Mm-hmm. And for you, I would have thought maybe that's all that matters. As long as the knowledge is transferred down the generations and we know what he wrote and what he said and how it's been built on, why the thumbprints and the, the muckiness appeals to you is not a side of your personality I, I hear you talk about much, that, that, kind of, that kind of dirty behind-the-scenes way that it was made. I, sort of th- I always think of you more as a, more as a you know, come back and show me when you finish your book, Isaac. I don't, I don't, I don't want to see how you, I don't want to see how you made the sausage. I just want to eat the sausage. So, well, I mean, civilization depends on the knowledge being transferred. You know, if, if I had to pick, do we get to keep the original book or have the knowledge be transferred? Oh wow, yeah, there this we is go. this is an extraordinary page here. Look at this. So, 
all the right-hand facing pages have sort of the manuscript on there with little notes next to it. But mm. occasionally on these left-hand pages that have been left blank, you sometimes see like a bit of working out or a note. And we've just mm-hmm. turned to one page, which has just got a whole bunch of equations on it. Little sums that are being done and actual actual mathematics by these people. Like. Yeah, I mean, this looks like like the kinematics equations or some some early variant of them. Like this is, yeah, this is, this looks like the gravitational force calculation. Ah, this is interesting to see. It's very interesting to see. It's pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting to me. It's it's so old that the the ink is flaking off almost in some of these some of these editions that have been made. It's such an honor to be allowed to look at this mm-hmm. and be left alone with it. Oh, here we go. This is what I wanted to find. Oh, there you go. Perfect timing. So, so I'm going to turn the book around here so I, so that those who are looking at the camera can see it. This is the handwriting of Isaac Newton because. Keith, who is very familiar with Newton's handwriting. And basically he's written there, James II, by the grace of God, king of... So he's writing some sort of crawly, brown nosy thing <laughs> about, the, about the king there, obviously. Right. And he's like, he's drafting what he wants to write. Or wants, he wants, and he's just stopped midway through, like he stopped writing. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's Isaac Newton's handwriting, you know, making another note on the, mm-hmm. on the side. They're writing about the king. So. Yeah. You always have to get politicking and brown nosing done. <laughs> no matter what time it is. Exactly, exactly. So there we go. We could look at this. I mean, I could look at this all day. We won't read any of it to you because I believe it's probably written in Latin. I haven't even looked. Uh, yeah, I, I <laughs> can't read any of that. I was trying to see. I mean, yeah. there's a few things that pop out. Like I can see the words angular momentum. Even if we could read it, it's going to be very hard to understand or follow. These old documents, even when they are written in English, handwritten, I'm, I'm rubbish at reading them. I really am. Anyway. Yeah, well, it's just because, again, because of certain kinds of people, the language changes over time. and But also, it's more the handwriting. Like, once I sort of see through the handwriting, this isn't a good example because it's in Latin, but once I see through the handwriting of these old documents here at the Royal Society, I find the language quite... I can, I can understand the language. Mm-hmm. I just can't see through the handwriting. I think I'm bad at reading handwriting anyway, but... Do I you can... ever write in cursive or script? No. Do you know I, do you know I write in all capital letters? My natural handwriting. Here, I'll show you. That's how I write. All capital letters. <laughs> yeah. Just all the time? Yeah. Do you know how to write lowercase letters? Did you ever learn? Yes, but I stopped when I was in about year five at school. And if you see my writing in like normal, normal, not capitalized letters, it looks like a year five student writing. Hmm. It's like my handwriting's frozen in time. Hmm. So if I try to write cursive or just normal writing it looks like a little kid whereas mm-hmm. my adult writing my so old capitals is, is unusual but it looks like an adult wrote it it's all caps do you hold the pen just with a fist yeah like you just yeah. Oh, you're that's how <laughs> the claw right yeah. good <laughs> anyway there we go principia have i started well have i started with a bang it's 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 quite an object to start with the thing that i, I always think about with principia that's kind of a Amazing when you deal in, in the world of physics and mathematics is just how, how long lasting it is. And so it's, it's this calculus and these equations that were, were used in no small part to put a man on the moon, right? Which now connects to your favorite passion. And I, I always find that remarkable that you think, oh, some, someone did, did work a couple hundred years ago and it's, it's true and it is useful and you can use it a couple hundred years later to accomplish something. It's, 
it's just very impressive. Let's put that one away then, hey? All right. We've managed to look at it without ripping it or breaking it. Yes, we haven't broken anything yet. That is a good start. I'm going to take this away. I'm going to walk across the room, put this back in a safe place, and I'm going to get you another object. Okay. The Royal Society is all about preserving forever things that are important. They have seemingly endless collections of important historical documents and paintings and tools and letters. It's a literally invaluable collection. But as we all know, physical things will decay over time. But digital, digital lasts forever. If you back it up. And that's what today's sponsor of this very special episode of Hello Internet, Backblaze, is for. I back up stuff, you might be thinking to yourself right now. I made a copy of some of my important files on a USB key, so I'm totally covered, right? No, you're not totally covered. Because if you have your backup in the same building as your important files, that's not really a backup. That's just a duplicate. And when your house burns down, it's all gone. Backblaze gives you the key vital feature of a complete backup system, which is your files somewhere else, somewhere that is not physically proximate to you and your equipment. So Backblaze is a little program. It will run on your Mac or your Windows PC, and it spends all day long scanning for new files on your computer and uploading them into the delicate, safe hands of Backblaze's cloud, where your backup can rest nice and safe just waiting for the day that you need it. If you don't have online backup for your files, I don't know how you sleep at night. What I want you to do right now is to go to backblaze.com slash hello internet and sign up for this service. This really is possibly one of the only services I can say that every single person who's listening to this podcast needs to get. Because having online backup is almost like going to the doctor. Everybody thinks, oh, I don't need to go to the doctor. I don't need an annual checkup. But everybody does. And everybody thinks, oh, I won't run into any problem with my digital files. But everybody does. And Backblaze solves that for you. They solve it for you for just $5 a month for unlimited, unlimited, unthrottled backup. How can you say no to that? I, I don't think you can. This very instant, go to backblaze.com slash hello internet and sign up. Of course, when you go to that URL, you're letting Backblaze know that you have enjoyed this very special episode of Hello Internet that they have brought to you with their support. But you're also doing it for you, for you and all of the files that you have on your computer. Please do this. These guys are the experts. They have an enormous amount of data backed up in their system. They've restored 10 billion files for their customers. 10 billion problems averted. That's what these guys do. I just, I don't even know, I don't even know what to say anymore. Except backblaze.com slash hello internet. Do it right now. What is this? You're bringing over a whole platter. Right. My very first thought, which is, which is embarrassing, is, oh, it looks just like the maps in The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it does. So... The map is a secondary item here. Basically, okay. when I was talking with Keith, I wanted to find things that I thought would appeal to you. Mm -hmm. So I had him on the case of flags. Mm. Now, we didn't have as much luck as I hoped with flags, mm -hmm. but we have got a flag here. Mm -hmm. This is actually a flag that's been featured on Objectivity. 
which is the channel which is the channel I do all about objects here at the Royal Society. So some people may be familiar with this. Mm-hmm. Not that many, unfortunately, but some people. <laughs> so this this is a flag. Here we go. I'm going to unfurl it for you. And as you can see... Ooh. It's been through some challenges, this there, flag. There's not a whole lot of it left. Mm-hmm. This is a flag that will be familiar to you. Mm-hmm. It is the Union Jack. It is the Union Jack. You're saying Union Jack, you're just inviting controversy. I am not. All right. It's the Union, it's the Union Jack or the Union flag or whatever you want to call it, but it has really been ripped to shreds. It says Union Jack right there. It does. On the, on the label itself. It's got its own, its own tag here. In fact, you can read the tag to everyone. Okay, so the tag says, Union Jack flown on tower at Penguin Leap, Halley Bay. Raised by advance party in 1956, taken down 3rd September 1957. So look at that. We've got a flag and penguins in the one thing. So wow. This is, this, is a, this is a hell of internet perfect storm. <laughs> so as Grade has told you, this was a Union Jack that was flown in Antarctica. Okay. So is what? Yeah. Halley Bay is in Antarctica? It is. The Royal Society sent a science expedition down. This flag flew above the base there for... Well, we see there. What's that? We don't know exactly. About a year. Year and a half, yeah, a year. So, so this grey gives you an idea what happens to a flag mm. after exactly a year flapping in the Antarctic wind. And it looks like a well-made flag. Mm. You know, it's well-stitched and it's like a, it's a real, it's a good flag, but it has really just, it's just been taken to town by the wind. Well, so as it happens to flags, the, the, if you're looking at the flag, the, the mast side, oh, I'm going to forget all my proper t- flag terminology here, but the side that would be against the mast is mostly okay. But then as, as you go toward the side that flaps in the wind, it's just gotten torn to shreds. And, and uh, I forget exactly what it is, but the, I believe this is now off the top of my head, so I may be wrong. But I believe that, that that snapping sound from flags is partly a result of that under the right wind circumstances. It's actually breaking the speed of sound, that it's it's cracking in the air. Like a whip. Yeah, and that's why it gets so frayed at the end, is that you, you don't tell, you think, oh, this flag is just up, in, just up there in the wind. But it's actually under a lot of stress and strain at the very edge. So that's why uh, flags can end up looking, looking pretty rough. And I imagine Antarctica has some pretty strong winds. So there's the flag. And you mentioned this Lord of the Rings map. Mm-hmm. which is underneath. So I'm going to move this tatty old but special flag out the way. And basically, this is just a map showing you where this expedition took place and where the flag flew. As Gray said, this map does it looks just like the Lord of the Rings maps, doesn't it? The writing on it could not be more Lord of the Ringsy. And a nice little touch on the map is someone's drawn like a little whale in the sea uh, with like uh, water coming out of its blowhole and they've written next to it, whale blowing, October 31, <laughs> uh, 1956. So they obviously saw a whale blowing one day and decided that was worthy of going on the map. Although I don't imagine that's a particularly permanent fixture. <laughs> no, but you have all of the space, which is just going to be the water. So you might as well fill it with things that you have seen. And I do like that they have done an adorable little, like a child would draw the, the water coming out of the top of the whale, kind of going up in a straight line and then, and then going over the sides. But there are a few other touches on the map that do give it that Lord of the Rings feel like there's talking about distant cliffs and right. things like that so we'll take i'll take some extra pictures of this map and put it in the show notes so people can really absorb it the way we're absorbing it yeah this is a big one you have a whole portfolio it looks like you're carrying over it's a big book a, a book i mean it's it's as big as your torso a book it's, is it's is huge. uh it's huge it's not it's only just gonna fit on the table so great when i was preparing for today 
I really wanted to make it more about you than me. So I was, okay. I was sort of saying to Keith, let's find things that will be of interest to Gray. And I was thinking of, you know, your little peccadillos mm-hmm. and interests. And anyway, we walked past this book mm-hmm. and it had a name on the side which said Matthew Flinders, mm-hmm. which is a name that will mean nothing to you. It, it means nothing to yeah. you. Yeah. But for an Australian and particularly a South Australian. <laughs> Here we go. Here's this thing. For a South Australian, it is a big deal. Almost everything in Australia and particularly South Australia is named after Flinders because he was an explorer who discovered a lot of that part of Australia or you know, did a lot of the early. He discovered it in the, in the white man sense of the word and. And I'm not going to even get into debates about who found what first. But Flinders did a lot of the mapping of Australia. So I said, can I have a quick look at that book just for personal interest? Mm -hmm. It's a massive book. Keith got it out. He opened up to a particular page. And by luck, he opened up to the page that I've opened up to here, right? And I looked at it. And I've never... I cannot tell you the emotions this made me feel. This, This sent chills down my spine. And I've... The excitement I felt was something quite extraordinary. And I still, I still feel it now to look at this. Uh-huh. Now, again, this won't mean a tremendous amount to you. <laughs> I'm just looking at this and yeah. like, I can't even tell. Where's the water? So the water is, <laughs> the water is, the water is your side okay. and this is the land. Okay. This is the bottom of Australia. Okay. This is South Australia where I'm from. Right. And here where my finger is, is where Adelaide, the city I am from, is now located. But this is the first time anyone had ever gone there. Whole parts of the coast, for example, this is a famous island here called Kangaroo Island. Hmm. This island hasn't even been fully mapped. It's like those maps that have got pieces missing where they just assume land will be. This is like my home being discovered for the first time and nothing nothing's there and he's come and he's sailed along these waters and this land and he's he's writing down what he's seeing for the first time on this peninsula here where there is now the huge city of adelaide there's just nothing there's nothing there and he's sailing along and he's writing notes about the things that he's seeing like oh i saw a fire here Obviously, you know, some of the natives, the, mm-hmm. the Aborigines, were lighting fires because this is the Ghana plain where the, uh, the Ghana people, Aboriginal people lived. And, uh, you know, I'm seeing smoke here. I saw much smoke here. And most exciting of all, overlooking the city of Adelaide is a, you could call it a mountain maybe. Mm-hmm. It's a very large hill. It's a mountain. It's called Mount Lofty. Mm-hmm. On, top of other te- on top of other television towers uh-huh. that are broadcast into Adelaide and you go up there, there's a restaurant up there. It's a scenic place to go. It's like an iconic part of Adelaide. And here he's seen it for the first time and given it the name Mount Lofty like on his, on his first map because it's the tallest, map, the tallest mm-hmm. mountain. Oh, I'll call that Mount Lofty. Mm-hmm. So here, like this is like... This is the discovery of my home. I cannot tell you how much it excites me to look at this. And then I did say, this has to be on the podcast tomorrow. Gray's going to have nothing to say. Gray's going to have nothing to say about it. Well, uh, but, but it just, it, it actually makes me really emotional. It's amazing. So tell me, why does it make you really emotional? I can't explain like, it. I, I, I'm looking at you right I now and I can, it. I can tell that you are genuinely emotional. I can't explain it. I mean, Australia hasn't even, it's still on the map here. It says Terra Australis. Australia isn't even named yet. Mm-hmm. It's still just the southern land. This map has become like the back of my hand. Like if there's any map I know, it's mm-hmm. South Australia, my home state, and the cities and the towns and all these familiar things. And here it is still being half drawn for the first time. Like it's not even – they don't even know what's there yet. Mm-hmm. It's like it's amazing to me. 
I wish you were from Adelaide right now because because <laughs> because if it was someone else from Adelaide, we would just be here like salivating all over this and getting thinking how amazing it is. But well, I, I, that's why I wish this is where I always wish I was a better interviewer because I I, I would love to, I would love to be able to have you articulate why you feel this way. I can't. You ask. You, you, there's nothing wrong with what you asked. You know, you just said you asked the perfect question. What do you feel? Why do you feel that? There was just no words for it. I don't know. It's like I'm trying to think of. The nearest thing to it is occasionally when I see like a photo of my wife when she was like a little baby or a little girl, and whenever I see that, I also feel mm. the same way. It's like, oh wow, you know, you existed, you existed before <laughs> me, and like you had this whole, you had this whole thing, like you were, you were once just a little, you were once a baby, and right. now you're this important part of my life, and I never knew you was a baby. And this is kind of, this is like seeing where I'm from as a baby. Hmm. This is seeing where I'm from, like you know, in the womb almost. Mm. It's like, wow, it's not even. It's not even match it. There's nothing there. This part of the map on the peninsula here between the mountain range, sorry podcast listeners, there's like a mountain range and there's a thin plain of land and then there's the sea, all the beaches of Adelaide. This is just a huge city now. Mm-hmm. And, he- and here, Matthew Flinders is sailing up into this Gulf of St. Vincent and there's nothing. There's nothing there. He's like, oh, there's a mountain and there's trees and, oh, look, I think I see some smoke over there from like probably the natives lighting mm. a fire. That's all there is. And now, that's my home. But one day, this will be home to the mighty black stump. (laughs) It is the mighty black stump, which is about there where my finger is. It's where the black stump is. You you can see the kind of, I don't know what to call it in in art language, but the kind of etching almost, or the very fine lines that are making up all the details of the mountains. It's just... Mm. It's just the amount of human labor and effort that used to have to go into producing things like this. Yeah, and it's just, it, I I think modern people can't can't understand that that amount of time and effort, and that's why you know in in movies that have vaguely medieval settings, people are always really careless with the old maps. Right, they're always like, "Oh, setting them on fire!" Right, or just slamming a knife through the middle of them. It's like, no, it took a team of monks a hundred years, you know, just to produce that map. It's like so many man hours. You know, we don't just have a stack of them to pass out to the troops. But sometimes you'll see that in a movie. They're like, "Oh, handing out maps to everybody." It's like, where'd you get all those maps? <laughs> if you have the riches to buy twenty maps. You know, why are you even why are you even waging this war? <laughs> the rich to buy 20 maps i'll tell you a good story about this passage of water here this oh is, boy yeah this is called the backstairs packet the backstairs passage which sounds kind of rude oh, it sounds extremely rude it, it does but anyway um but backstairs passages you know in you know it's the servants isn't it? that's what they use in explaining never makes a rude thing sound less rude no it doesn't <laughs> no yeah that's what the servants use that sounds right, even worse yeah. <laughs> so it's so anyway this waterway between the city of Adelaide and this island called Kangaroo Island, which is a tourist destination. Mm-hmm. Many years back, when I, was, when I was still working in Adelaide, a southern right whale died. And sometimes when a whale dies, it floats to the surface. And there was this whale floating, floating there in this passage that ferries use to get tourists across to the island. Mm-hmm. So pe- people have got to know about this because they've got boats and you don't want to crash into a whale. But the other thing that often happens when you get these dead whales floating in the water is great white sharks, which inhabit these waters, mm-hmm. think, this is brilliant. This is like right. an all-you-can-eat buffet. So what happens is you'll get 10, 15 great white sharks basically just camp there for a week, and they'll just sit there gnawing on this whale like a dog <laughs> gnawing on a bone. These mm-hmm. massive great white sharks all around <laughs> it in a circle, like spokes on a wheel. Mm-hmm. 
So this became, just just attached and chomping away and sleeping much, and then jumping. Pretty much, pretty much like like leeches or something. They're just sitting mm-hmm. there, and it's it's an extraordinary sight. And it's not that common to happen in such a well populated area. Mm-hmm. So it became a real tourist thing, and tourist boats were going out there to go and go and see the great white sharks, not the dead whale. That's disgusting. But everyone wants to see a great right. white shark. Yeah. So seeing a dozen of them in one place. So people started flying in from all around the world to come and be taken out in boats into the backstairs passage to go and watch the great white shark. And helicopters were going up. Hmm. But it started getting crazy. And one guy who was the craziest of all, and he became like known as a national idiot for this, <laughs> he was watching it on a boat next mm-hmm. to the whale. And he got a bit excited and stupid. And he jumped off his boat onto the whale and like stood on the whale, which is like an upturned boat in itself, standing on this big fleshy whale, surrounded by great white sharks. National idiot. Yeah. No, it gets better. He did it holding a young child, like a baby. He was holding a baby, jumped off his boat onto a wobbly floating whale, being eaten by sharks because he just thought it would be cool. And it was filmed by everyone and photographed and he became a real pariah, but... Yeah. I always look for video footage and photos of it, but it was so long ago mm-hmm. that you can't find it on YouTube or the internet, so it's kind of burned in my memory. If I actually see it, I'll probably be really disappointed, but it was such an extraordinary thing. If anyone's got footage of it, tweet Gray. <laughs> no. <laughs> no one's going to have footage of that. There we go. Let's put this map away. This very special episode of Hello Internet is brought to you by Igloo, an intranet you will actually like. That's an intranet, not an internet. If you don't like the internet, well, there's not really much you can do except get off of it. But if you don't like your intranet, the thing that your company uses to let you access all of the files at work, you can fix that. Igloo lets your company share news, organize your files, coordinate calendars, and manage projects all in one place. And Igloo's latest upgrade, Viking, revolves around documents and how you interact with them, gather feedback, and make changes. They've even added the ability to track who has critical information and keep everyone on the same page. It's like read receipts in your email, but less annoying, to help you track who's read what and who's acknowledged what, what agreements have been signed off on and confirmed, and who's seen the vital and important update to a document that you've just made. This kind of thing is Almost impossible on most companies' intranets. I certainly know when I worked at the various schools that I did, all of their intranets were were piles of dog mess, is the best way to put it. Just endless folders of Word documents with folders and Word documents and no kind of structure, no idea who's looked at what, no idea who's in charge of what or who's working on what. Had I known about Igloo, I would have begged begged the IT departments at my various schools to switch over to this. If you're listening to me and you're one of those IT departments in a company somewhere, just go to igloosoftware.com slash hello so they know you came from us and rest your eyes on the much better looking intranet that you have the power to bring to your company. And then look back at the horrible intranet that you are using that looks like it was built in the 1990s and Give Igloo a try instead. You can sign up for a free trial at igloosoftware.com slash hello. Once again, that's igloosoftware.com slash hello, or click the link in the show notes to give Igloo a try. Once again, we would like to thank Igloo Software for their support of this very special episode of Hello Internet. It's glove time. 
Oh, glove time, okay. Yeah, we're gonna put on the gloves. Oh, these are the object objectivity gloves. These aren't the objectivity gloves. Oh. They're, they're a special set that sit in my camera bag, but these are similar to them. Now, why do we have to wear gloves for this one? Because it's time for Apple Watch Corner. Every, uh, we love talking watches. <laughs> you love your Apple Watch. I, do. I love my Speedmaster, which I'm not wearing at the moment, actually, because I didn't want to tap it on the table, so it's over in my bag. But oh, I should have taken my watch off. No, no. I'm, yeah. I'm busy tapping on the table and making all kinds of fidgety noises that Brady keeps giving me silent hand gestures to stop. I know, it's my turn to tell you off. Yeah. So it's time for a watch. In front of us is a, is a box. I'm opening the box, and I'm taking out a small golden pocket oh, watch. Oh, wow. I'll hand this to you. You can have a look. Here we go. Ooh, that is that is yeah. a solid item. You like it? Yeah. What do you think about pocket watches? They're nice objects, aren't they? Yeah. It, it just, it, I'm just, I'm just looking at it. It's, I'm just looking at the design of of the watch face. So the whole thing is very, very gold, and as the Roman numerals going around the edges for each of the hours, the hands are gold. There's a kind of gold spiral pattern in the center of it, and around the edges, there's lots of gold detailing. I do like it. If I if I was getting a pocket watch, though, I want a little bit more contrast between the hands and the background. That's like a fair I would call. want, I would want a higher contrast for glancing at it quickly. Presumably, while I'm trying to catch a train in the 1800s or something. I don't know if that's what I'm using this watch for. Bit, bit earlier, maybe. Bit what, earlier. What would you think if I told you you were holding Isaac Newton's watch? No. Would you be impressed? I would be quite impressed. There is a famous painting of Isaac Newton. Is it really Isaac Newton's pocket watch? I'll show you. So here's the painting. Wow. Here's the painting. Isaac Newton mm-hmm. pointing at a gold pocket watch on the table. And then oh. Isaac Newton's pocket watch was donated to the Royal Society. So Isaac Newton's pocket watch. Lovely. Impressed? I, I, am, I am very impressed. I'm, what I'm wondering is how accurate a pocket watch from that time would be. Here's a better question, Greg. Mm-hmm. How accurate is the claim that it's Isaac Newton's pocket watch? Well, this, yeah, this, this is this is always the thing with historical objects. Let isn't us it? investigate further. I've okay. been given special permission to take off one glove to handle the handle the watch. Oh wow! I want to, we're going to open up the watch. Okay. I need a finger to get. Here we go. So I've, op- I've opened I've opened up the sort of the glow the gold case that it is in. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So the the thing that I was thinking was the whole pocket watch. It has like a case around the outside of it, and in. Inside of it is actually a much smaller object that's, that that okay. is the actual pocket watch. So now I've taken the smaller watch out and I'm turning it around and we have an engraving on the back. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Kath Conduit, who was a uh, relative and carer of Isaac Newton, to Sir Isaac Newton, January 4th, 1708. So this is, this is seeming quite promising. The engraving seems seems to yeah, indicate that during you, you, you know it's a relative, relative and close friend of Newton mm-hmm. giving something to Newton on a date when he was still which still well and truly alive. Mm-hmm. There is a problem with this though, mm-hmm. and that is there is a hallmark from the watchmaker on here, which all sort of gold and jewelry has. Do you mean like, like the tradesman mark? Is that yeah, what you the mean tradesman, by the, ha- the tradesman stamp a hallmark into okay. any jewelry. So any piece of silver or gold usually will have a hallmark stamped into it. Mm-hmm. And when you check the hallmark on this watch and investigate other things like when that face was manufactured, which mm-hmm. people in the know can do, it turns out this watch was manufactured after Sir Isaac Newton died. Hmm. So... Pretty much, this is a fake. 
So it's a fake. This is bogus. If it's fake, why are we being so careful with the gloves? Well, it's still really old, <laughs> and it's still really, really valuable. Uh-huh. It's still a it's still a gold watch from the 1700s. Mm-hmm. So, like, people would pay a lot of money for it. Mm-hmm. So let me. I'll put this. Ah, oh, but it's not Isaac Newton's. But it's not. But in some ways, in some ways, the fact that it has gone all these years purporting to be Isaac Newton's and is not is part of the fun of it as well. Sometimes, sometimes these hoax ob- objects like the Hitler diaries and things mm-hmm. like that in themselves take on a, a story and a personality of their own. And I feel that way a little bit about this watch. It would be better if it was Isaac Newton's watch. But the fact that it kind of got... It was donated to the Royal Society as his watch and this is, and it was kind of promoted as this and treated like this and treated with all this reverence. And, mm. then, and then people start investigating. And I have a paper that was written here. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the, the, the title of the paper is A Bogus Newtonian Curiosity at the Royal Society. <laughs> and when was this written? This was written in 2001, okay. I believe. He writes a big, long paper. I'm not going to go into all the detail. But he investigated all the things like the hallmarks. The, mm-hmm. inner, the inner case, which is the watch part itself, is hallmarked mm-hmm. 1729. Mm-hmm. Newton died in 1727. Mm-hmm. So it's, it was the watch was made at least two years after Newton died. Mm-hmm. Later on, they thought possibly it was made even later. Mm-hmm. And then all sorts of other issues come into play as well, including the change between calendars really throws Oh, them yes, so, so, yes. So some of the things to do with changing between calendars, you know, Gregorian and the like, make them think that maybe this watch is even newer. Is even newer? Is even newer than claimed. Perhaps the sort of the 1750s, 1740s. So presumably someone was trying to cash in on Isaac Newton it at the time? It seems like that. I mean, it seems like someone has put that engraving on. Well, obviously someone has put that engraving on saying, this was given to Isaac Newton, etc., etc. Right. And Newton was long dead. Right. So that's a bit naughty. It, it is naughty, Brady. But sometimes people will do things for money that are naughty. <laughs> are you about to admit something? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying... You're looking at me with these innocent eyes of like, oh, I can't believe someone would have faked a watch. Someone would fake a historical object. Oh, my. It's like, well, yes, sometimes these things happen. I thought, though, this would quite appeal to you because, you know, here's me saying old objects are brilliant. We should all bathe in the glory of old objects. And this is an opportunity for you to say the older something is, the more chance of things like this happening, fakery, things being duped, things are less reliable the older they get. I mean, this is a this is a valuable lesson, and not a lesson the Royal Society needs to learn. I mean, they've got oh, they've got expert that spe- experts that spend all their time writing papers about these. Yeah, things. of course, this is an entire field of trying to determine the authenticity of of old objects. I'm trying, I'm trying to remember. I may have this book wrong, but I, I remember reading a book a while back. I think it was called The Man in the High Tower. In there, one of the characters discusses that he he has like a, a cigarette lighter that prevented uh, through just accident, like the assassination of a of a historical president, and he has the this little cigarette lighter, and he goes, "Oh, I, I know that it's real because I have like the letter of authenticity that goes along with it," and then he pulls out a, an identical cigarette lighter made at the same time at the same year, and 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 he says, "You know, what, what is the difference between?" These two objects that like one has the letter of authenticity with it and one doesn't, but I can just switch these two when you're not looking. And then, you know, do you know which one is which? I think the, the whole notion of, of trying to keep 
track of particular objects is a surprisingly difficult one. And in many ways, I think it's reasons why places like museums exist, is, is you, you try to collect things at the time and keep them under your control and keep passing them on, because otherwise when things turn up, it's very hard to know, is, is this a real claim or is it not a real claim? However you like to pronounce it, there's one thing we can agree on surely. Hover is a great service for registering domains. If you do anything on the web, whether professional or personal, securing a good solid domain name, it's really important. Hover makes this cheap and more importantly, super simple. They've got a really elegant website, it's super easy to use. Now if you're doing things work related on the web, I'd be surprised if you haven't already got a cool domain name. If you haven't, you better get on that. But even if you're doing things just for fun, a cool URL can be really good fun and worth having. For example, say hypothetically you have a pet chihuahua and you want to show off all your cute pictures and videos. You could go to hover.com and register something like, say, adorableaudrey.net. And then bingo, you've got a great eye-catching URL that you can share with all your friends. You could do the same with something more serious, like maybe principiamathematica.net and then show off a whole bunch of things about the Principia. You might want to try a different suffix, and Hover has a huge range from those typical .coms right through to all the weird and wonderful ones like .guru and .plumbing, .cricket, a favourite of mine. The range is massive. For example, purely hypothetically here, you could register Amiga Speedmaster .watch and show off all your pictures of your favourite timepiece. Now, Hover's more than just a one-stop shop for domains. They've also got great services and extras. One of the best is their valet domain service, which basically means if you've made a terrible mistake and registered a domain elsewhere with one of those shadier companies, Hover's going to help give you a Darth Vader-like conversion, bring back all those disparate domains under one Hover umbrella. If you want to find out more and hurry up and register a cool name before all the good ones are gone, go to hover.com. Now, when you check out, you're going to get 10% off by using a special promo code for this show. The code is OBJECT, because we're talking about objects today, obviously. That's 10% off hover.com. Use the code OBJECT. And a huge thanks to Hover for supporting this special episode of Hello Internet. We have another book-looking thing, but it actually looks like it's going to be a collection of, of papers, like it a is. big portfolio. So it's, like a, it's like a faux book, but it is a book with sheets that are... <laughs> it's almost like someone's taken a print stick, like a glue stick, and has fixed a very large number of individual letters into this book. These are an assortment of manuscripts and papers and letters and speeches. And this is all written in English now, so these are things that you, people like you and I can just read and find little gems in. So yes. who knows what gems you may find? And I'm going to show you a real gem. Oh, look at this. <laughs> this is not what we're looking for. But look, here's a pictures of jawbones. Yeah, so we're, yeah, we're just scrolling, scrolling through. We're <laughs> flipping through this book. And yeah, suddenly there's very detailed pictures of yeah. jawbones. And it looks know. like they're focusing on the teeth placement. Yeah, so some scientist has obviously written in about jawbones and sent in his observations of the sun. There's all sorts of things here. Oh, look at this. This, this is amazing, isn't it? You can see why I started objectivity, because you come to the Royal Society for one thing, and you mm -hmm. think, suddenly you're thinking, oh, what's this thing? There's, this looks like it's plants that are being drawn. Yeah, it looks like a stem cross-section. Yeah. Xylem them up, flow them, flow them down. Oh, now you're getting fancy. I love all this stuff. I love it. <laughs> what's this? Look at that. 
Oh, that's one of those telescopes. Oh, I'm sorry. Bra- is- Brady will get lost in diagrams and old letters so easily. I love this. I just love this. This is what this is. I could spend all my life just looking through these old papers. So that, and the diagrams. thing that we're flipping through right now is this all from one person or is this just a random no, assortment? No, of- I think it's almost a bit chronological. So I think you know this is the stuff. What year does it say on the? Yeah, side that's what I was trying to see here. This is letters, letters and papers, eighteen eighteen oh one. So this is just this is just the stuff that was coming into the Royal Society in 1801, and it's all just been filed. This is a fan mail to the Royal Society. Do you know what I did find the other day? A letter that someone wrote in asking for William Herschel's autograph. Mm-hmm. I was amazed that people were asking for autographs back then, that you would write in and just say, oh, can I have... You can't do a selfie. What are you going to do? Yeah. I didn't know autographs dated back that far as a, as a thing like that. I'm, anyway. I'm sure people were asking for the Pharaoh's stamp. You know, they, they want to... Ooh. Yeah. Look, look at this. There's some amazing diagrams and pictures here of an ear, of the human ear. Mm-hmm. Look at this stuff. This is gold. It looks like there's some kind of device being inserted into the ear oh, in yeah. this drawing. A needle being stuck. does not look pleasant. A needle being stuck in an ear. That is way past the eardrum. On the way into this office, we went past a portrait of Thomas Young. Mm-hmm. And you were like, Thomas Young, I know that name. And you had a little mental blank. Mm-hmm. We are now going to talk about Thomas Young. This is a paper he sent in. Well, it's not a paper. It's a lecture he gave. There's a famous lecture of the Royal Society. It's called the Bakerian Lecture. And this is the Bakerian Lecture that Thomas Young gave in 1801. The date's written here at the top of the paper. Mm -hmm. It says he read the lecture in November 1801. And here's the lecture, handwritten, Mm -hmm. that he gave. What's it called? Let's see what it's called. The lecture is titled On the Theory of Light and Colors. Okay. So he gives this big old lecture. To be fair, it goes for a fair while. He, just, he, 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 he rabbits on a bit. Yeah, this, doesn't, this doesn't look like it's a, a snappy 10-minute video kind of lecture. No, this is more Brady style than Gray style. <laughs> he's gone, he's gone. I was thinking 10 minutes is already Brady style. <laughs> yeah, he's gone for a... He's gone for quantity here. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of propositions and hypothesis. And, and I'm not going to get you to read what it's about. But I think when you see... This is the first time this was discussed. And when mm-hmm. you see the picture at the end, you'll realize why this lecture was a bit of a big deal. This is a long, long lecture. It was a long lecture, wasn't it? Gosh. Wow. You wonder how many people made it to the end. Here's the pictures to go with it, though. Tell me if this looks familiar. Oh, it's it's the diffraction patterns we of ha- light. This is slits. Yeah. Young of young slit fame. Hmm. Who went on to do double slit experiments. This is a single slit experiment. This is the young who did double slit. So anyone from school will know all about young's slits and diffraction of light going course, through slits. Of course. This is this is the man. And this is this is the first time. That he revealed to the world what he'd found, what he was learning about how light travels. So this is the first lecture on the the kind of wave nature of light, I guess. Yeah. The fact that when light passes through a, a narrow passage, instead of just going straight through like you like you might think it would, uh, you can observe that it it diffracts, it, it sort of bends around the curve, uh, bends around the hole uh, ever so slightly. And there it is. He's drawn it. He's shown it. 
He's telling people about it for the first time. He's writing it with his hand and telling people. And now this is like, for a physics teacher like you, mm-hmm. this is, you know, this is... We don't even bother with the single slit, right? He's just, no. You sort of jump right into the double slit experiment and try to talk about the, the strange things that are going on there. It's like, yeah. oh, single slit, eh, whatever, you know. So anyway, I just thought it'd be nice to show a physics teacher the moment that... Young gave his own lesson and mm-hmm. sprung on the world this 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 fundamental, iconic uh, demonstration. And the other thing I love about this, we were talking about how there are all these disparate papers one after the other. You know, one minute we're looking at a needle being stuck in someone's ear, the next minute we're looking at a plant, the mm-hmm. next minute we're looking at Young mm-hmm. telling the world about the wave nature of light. The next paper straight after um, this Young lecture that mm-hmm. has been stuck into this folio is actually all about the discovery of niobium a new element hmm. so this is what a golden time for science like i know every i know science is always golden and there's always things happening no, look I just, at this no, no, one just... minute we've got young discovering this wave-like nature of light we've got new elements being discovered like fundamental things this is yeah this is amazing i'll disagree with you there that, that there there is definitely a kind of golden age of science between you know, this say broadly like 1700 to the end of the 1800s. And the reason why I think you can say that's a golden period is because of a bunch of overlapping factors. One, there was an enormous amount of stuff to still be discovered. Uh, so like there, there, there was fruits just waiting for those who were going to look low hanging fruit. Yeah. Right. Two, just as we as we started with this one, you have Isaac Newton and a bunch of other people starting to bring in more rigorous processes to how to, how do we do science? Like, what can you start applying mathematics to? And oh, like there was way more to be discovered. And, and and three, the the things that were available for people to discover, a lot of it is what we kind of call like in science like tabletop science, right? Like like a guy who like and it was like in the 1700s, you had a, like spare time and money. And a room in your house, you could discover something about the nature of light that nobody had ever discovered. And sure, you had to be a, a smarter person than the average person, but there was just so much there to be found that, that people could go and look and like discover things if they're willing to put in a lot of time. And if they were basically noble people in the 1800s who had money in spare time, that they didn't have to till the fields. So that's why I do think that that like that's a real golden age of science. Whereas, whereas now, I mean, you know, some of the stuff that I worked on when I was in university, um, some of those research projects, I mean, they were even the stuff that I was working on, like teams of several dozen people who were working on like just the, like a very small part of one machine that was part of this enormous facility up in up in Rochester that all told would have a thousand some odd people working on it and it's because well well now like we're we're probing the real edges of reality and so you can't you can't just be a guy in your in your room going like hmm maybe I'm going to discover something you know that that work is still available in theoretical physics but that age of practical physics is is over i think I know this is something I asked you about before, and I can halfway predict what your answer is. But I know, you know, I always bring up things like, would it, have be, would it be better to be a bear? Or would it be better to have lived hundreds of years ago? Now, I know mm. you're going to say to me, sure, as long as you're not tilling the field or dying of dysentery or something like that. But if, if you were lucky enough to be, you know, a, a person of means, 
would it not be a better time to be living when you could do things like discover Pluto, map Australia for the first time, discover an element? Like, is that stuff gone? Is it, would it not, would it, for someone who is excited by discovery, you know, I'm obsessed with Apollo and the moon missions and I missed out on that golden time of the late 60s, early mm. 70s. But for someone who has a mind like that, would it not have been more exciting when all this stuff was unknown and almost every few weeks it was like, oh, my goodness, they found a whole other continent. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness, they've just found another planet. Mm-hmm. Now it's kind of like, oh, look, they've now discovered the, the chromosome or the protein that helps the cell do this. And it's a bit like, hmm, it just doesn't seem quite as exciting anymore. The, the problem is a sense of, of scale because a lot of the 17, 1800 science is science that you can explain to an interested person. Whereas almost everything that's discovered in science now is very hard to explain what's actually occurring because the base knowledge required is just huge. It's absolutely huge. And it's why so many popular books you ever read on on physics, they kind of cover the period from like 1700 until like Isaac Newton. And then we kind of stop after that point because it, it just, be, it just gets to be too much. It's like, well, now you need to be an expert in this, in this field to a large extent. What's a great time for a, a, a scientifically interested person to be alive. And you're ignoring things like the dysentery right, and the horrible poverty everywhere. If you're putting aside all of the reasons you wouldn't want to live in the 1700s, you, you can say, yes, it, it, for certain kinds of people, it may have been, more intellectually satisfying to live then than to live now. I want, like in particular, I wonder about a guy like like a Lord Kelvin, who was a very scientific guy who was involved in lots of different areas. He was involved in temperature. He was involved in the early telegraphs. He was involved in a whole bunch of stuff. I, I wonder his kind of mind. How would that fit in a modern world? Like maybe he wouldn't have been as useful at CERN. As like he was just the right guy with the right mind at the right time. Can I quote you on that? Kelvin would have been rubbish at CERN, <laughs> says CGP. No, I'm I am postulating that it's possible. Yeah. Right. That that the the would the, Newton be a dunce these days? <laughs> Newton. I, I pick Kelvin in particular because like Newton, I think is a real singular yeah weirdo. Like, yeah. There's there's no way around that. Like Newton was a very strange person. Yeah. And. I think one, one of the side effects of, of the kind of strangeness that he had was a particular sort of intelligence. Yeah. Whereas, whereas at least what I've read about Kelvin struck me as he's way more like, like a resourceful guy mm. at the time. Like, like he may not have been the smartest scientist in the room, but he just had like lots of interests and was discovering a bunch of things. Yeah. So he may have been better suited at productive. that time. He was productive. Yeah. <laughs> he was productive in a bunch of areas. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's why I just it, science now versus science then are two very different things. And also to touch on and back up what you just said, I was reading last night a bit more about Isaac Newton because you were you were saying how you don't know how many scientists died and you couldn't remember how Newton mm-hmm. died. So I actually looked up last night how did mm-hmm. Isaac Newton die, and it sounds like he actually died a pretty horrible death. Mm-hmm. Like he was having a lot of health problems over an extended period. He was mm-hmm. in lots of pain. He was having all sorts of different ailments. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing you forget as well. You think, oh, it'd be nice to be Isaac Newton and have my painting up at the Royal Society. Right. But the guy was living in agony probably for years. Right. Because they were, and they didn't, they couldn't fix him because they just didn't know how to fix people. Right. Yeah. Because they just had leeches. That's yeah. all, that's all you had. Yeah. yeah. That's why I, I will always take living now or in the future as the options. But it's, it's a different question if you're asking about the nature of science. There was just 
more for more people to discover then. Time for the piece de resistance. Oh, yes. Yeah. We've got one more item. I love workflows. You love workflows. And what other types of systems are you very interested in? I love voting systems. You love voting systems. Uh-huh. <laughs> We've got voting. You have an object related to voting? Yep. I do. <laughs> oh, it's heavy. Boy, what is it? Oh, this is a ballot box this of some is, sort. This is, this is... With a fancy crest on the front. Yeah. Big, big wooden, very heavy voting box. This is the current official Royal Society voting box. I was, I was going to guess, this has to be the let's yeah. vote for the president of the Royal Society I, box. I don't think it's used for voting for the president. Oh, I don't think so, because I don't think that's done in person. I haven't been able to establish exactly what it's used for, mm-hmm. but I think it's more kind of businessy things. So if they need to do a vote on something like, are we happy with the annual report? Are we going to do mm-hmm. this business decision? And that? If it's anything that involves bits of paper mm-hmm. that they need to tick and cross and things like that, this is their ballot box. Mm. So... Yeah. yeah, it's nice. Big slot in the top for yeah. putting in the papers. Of course. If we look at the back. It's nicely angled at the top to help the papers go in. That's a, that's a nice little detail, right? Nice. Instead of just having it flat across the top. Nice sliding angles. Yeah, it's good, good. Point. It's good. Good point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there we go. Nice crest on the front. If we turn it around, here's the back. And if we turn these keys, I think. Oh, are they unlocked? It does not turn. It should. Oh, wait, it goes in and then turns. That's what it is. So oh, push it in. good call. It's like we're on a submarine right now and we're... Opening the nuclear yeah. launch codes. I haven't unlocked mine. Oh, wait, I? it's lefty loosey, righty tidy. So lefty loosey, yeah? Yeah. Well, we'd be rubbish at running an election, wouldn't we? <laughs> oh, there, oh, there we, we go. go. There we go. Okay. So there we go. And there we go. There, there's where you open it and take out the ballot papers. Mm. So. It's, you know what? You know what you want in a ballot box? You want something that looks official. Yeah. And this, this looks official. This is much better than the sort of cardboardy ones you see at real elections and Ballot booths generally don't look that impressive at elections, but this is lovely. This is this is this is great. You couldn't have one of these at every polling station in the UK, though. It'd be they'd be pretty expensive. You could if you took voting seriously. You know, yeah. you could. You definitely could if you take voting seriously. Okay. Anyway, don't be disappointed. Things are about to get a whole lot more interesting. What? Yeah. This is just. This is just a ballot. This is just a. You know, this is just to show you something nice to do with voting. Okay. But now I'm going to show you something awesome. Okay. Do you need a hand with that, or are you going? Before I show you this next item, don't get confused straight away. There is there is unresolved matters here which we may have to figure out, and I okay. haven't figured it out yet. But before we just do, deal with what confuses us, let's just revel in the loveliness of the item. Okay. All right. All right. Let me get the camera right. This is the previous voting machine that was used here at the Royal Society. Uh-huh. Let me, let me, let me start with this. Let me okay, get... yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, before you even do anything, I'm trying to think of how to describe this for the listeners. What does this look it's, like? You know what it looks like? It, it looks like uh, the top quarter of a periscope, like hmm. stuck on top of a box. There's a, there's a big circular opening that is facing perpendicular or parallel to the floor. It has yes, no written across the top of it, but there's no obvious thing to do with the yes or the no. It just says yes or no uh, above this big circular opening. And there's a little drawer on the bottom, which is also labeled Y and N below the below this big opening thing. It really would pay off to look at a picture of this if you're not watching the video. And we will make a picture available on the... But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to cast a vote here. Uh-huh. I'm going to cast a vote. Now, on top of this box, there is like a slot 
that's mm-hmm. been that, a groove in the top. And I imagine that is where you would put the question or the issue at hand. So, for example, it could say at the top there in the slot, I could put a piece of card or something in there saying, should CGP Grey be made a fellow of the Royal Society? Right. Do I want him to become a fellow? Then what I do is in my hand here, I have a small bowl. Ah, uh, uh-huh. And now... With this tiny bowl, I put my hand into this giant hole at the front that you described as looking like a periscope. And if you put your hand in there and feel, put your hand in there and have a little feel. I I see what this is doing immediately. You can drop the bowl to the left or the right for yes or for no. Yeah, so so when I put my hand in, I can feel there's a little little triangle kind of sticking up in the middle. Mm. And I can feel there's space on either side to drop a marble into yes or into no. Yeah. So there we go. So if I was decided I want, I think Gray, he's a good bloke. He should be made a fellow of the Royal Society. I would put my hand in. Everyone else in the room will have no idea what way I'm voting. I could, they'll just hear the little plop of the ball. So they will know I voted. I will be held accountable. Yes, Brady did cast his vote. I heard the ball plop, but I don't know if he went left or right. Right. So so this is a machine designed to ensure that voting occurs and that it is also anonymous yeah. because you can't see which way the person dropped the marble. So if we be quiet, if we're quiet here for a second, I will drop my ball to the left. There we go. There's it. There's the vote. And then at the end of the vote, this drawer at the bottom can be pulled out mm-hmm. and the drawer is split in two. So there'll be a whole bunch of balls in the left and maybe a whole bunch of balls in the right and, and you win the vote. Right. So that, that's how it's, how it's counted in the end. Very simple. I like this thing. Here's the complicating factor. That's quite a very simple yes or no, and you can decide whether you whether it's a simple plurality to win, or you could say two thirds of the votes or whatever you need. But here's the thing that I find interesting, because there's another type of voting that I don't know if you've dealt with before, but I'm sure you have. You've certainly heard of it before, because if you have a look at the balls there, mm-hmm. not all the balls are the same. Yeah, you have. So, so the I'll get to the two types basically that we're talking about here. Look, I mean, looking into the the box, there are it looks like there are multicolored ones. But overall, if you're going to divide them into two schemes, we have a light colored ball. Yeah, there's a light colored ball and there's a dark, a black one. A black ball. And they are different weights. It feels like, are okay. they? Okay. Uh, possibly, but that, the point is, some people may have heard of the term being blackballed. Mm-hmm being emitted. This is another type of voting that can be done using something like this, where you don't even necessarily need a yes or a no. And what Mm -hmm. this type of voting involves is there is no yes channel and no channel. What you do is you go up to the voting machine with two bowls in your hand, a black bowl and a white bowl. Mm -hmm. You put your hand into the machine or into this Mm -hmm. hole, into the box, and Mm -hmm. you release one bowl. And normally what it would be, it would be, I will release my light-coloured bowl if I want Grey to become a fellow of the Royal Society, for example, Mm -hmm. or whatever I want. And you release the black bowl if you don't. Mm -hmm. And then you open up the drawer at the end, and you then have options. You could count up the yes bowls, the the light bowls, versus the no bowls, Mm -hmm. the black bowls. Or a more dramatic way of voting and a more common way, and where the term black bowled comes from, is if just one person drops in a black bowl, mm-hmm. or sometimes they would make it two people if mm-hmm. they don't want you know, grudges to play too big a role. If you have one black bowl in the drawer at the end, you're out. You've been blackballed. 
you've missed out. You've missed out on your fellowship because you got blackballed. Right. So th- this is a way. This is basically a veto system yeah. where yeah. you say, oh, two two people. If we're using two two blackballs, mm-hmm. no matter how many people say yes. A veto is able to override yeah. all of the yeses, and you'll never know who blackballed you because here's Brady with his light ball and his dark ball. Right, puts his hand in, puts his hand in. Which one's he going to drop? And then he takes his other one away. We never see the one mm-hmm. he took away. Did I just blackball you, or did I drop a light ball? I would hope that you blackballed me because I have no. I would just be a terrible fellow. I have <laughs> I have done nothing to earn that honor. So the thing that has you going to open your hand or what? <laughs> I did just You did blackball you. me. I, black, I blackballed you. <laughs> even though I wanted you to, now I suddenly feel really angry about it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even know what I wanted. That's half the problem. Knowing me, I would put the black ball and the light ball in my hand, put my hand into the box, oh. and then not know which one was which. <laughs> oh, sorry. I meant to drop the white ball. I think that's why they have the rule that you need two maybe sometimes. Maybe. Right? maybe because, yeah. they, because there's always a Brady in every group. Mm. No, I, I thought he was a stand-up bloke, but I dropped the black ball. Yeah. So the thing that confused me last night when I was seeing this machine for the first time, Mm -hmm. and I didn't figure out the answer, although I've come up with a theory now, if we have this yes-no machine Mm -hmm. with a yes channel and a no channel, and you can just drop your ball left or drop your ball right down these two channels, why do we also have white balls and black balls? It It didn't quite make sense to me. Well, presumably because not every single vote is requiring of a veto. Right. That's what the, the machine can be multi-purpose. You have you have figured out in half a second what I, what I spent a good half hour to an hour <laughs> thinking about last night, and I, that's what I think. Well, maybe. I, I mean, I'm just guessing, but that's that's what I would m- presume. My my guess. Well, this is true, but my guess could also be you could use both purposes at the same time. It could be should should Gray become a member of the Royal Society? Mm-hmm. Yes or no? And we all go up to the machine. Drop le- and he's got to pass. He's got to get fifty percent of the yeses to to become a fellow. But you could also add a veto component to it. Right. So if he gets over fifty percent of yeses, he's in. But if he gets one black ball, right, he's also out. He's also out. So you could have double the double the complication. Right. The the thing that I, the reason why uh, the weight of them struck me immediately is I was wondering. There's another thing that you could do with this uh, uh, as an old fashioned way of doing this. But in uh, in many situations, votes are not equal. So you'll, you'll have several tiers of members where you'll have, say, like the inner council and their votes are worth three times as much as the, like the next tier out. And then you'll have the bottom tier members whose votes are maybe only worth 50% of the standard vote. And you could use a machine like this to do what many corporations do where they calculate the weight of various people's votes. You could do it with the literal weight of different balls if you wanted so to. So you just take, yes the ball, no. take the balls out at the end, put them on the scales and see if you got enough no. mass to win. That's exactly, You could do that as a way to, to approximate how, how powerful each person's vote is. Endlessly, endlessly interesting voting it never cease, never ceases to amaze me how much you think about ways of voting. I knew, <laughs> you've thought of ways I hadn't even thought of <laughs> just looking at the balls. <laughs> You could use the circumference of the spheres <laughs> multiplied by. <laughs> you could do it volumetrically as well. It's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, you can have then. Yeah. And then you put of, them in a. Then you put, put them in a, a bucket of water, like in a cylinder, right? And you'd have yeah. some sort of post that they need to get past, or you know, or, like, there's different ways that you could do it. Oh man, you're, getting, you're enjoying this way too much. What do you think of this as an object? I think it's, it's really interesting to see this kind of thing. This is like. And this is the one they were using to vote for fellows way back. Not anymore. This is going to sound really boring. But this, this to me is like a little piece of bureaucratic history 
Like, like there's, there's just stuff that we need to resolve. Like there's votes and passing yes or no. And, and you know what? You need equipment to help you with that kind of stuff. So this to me is a very, it's a very practical little device. I also think it's kind of cute. It, looks it is kind cute. Of cute. It looks like a little droid, doesn't it? It could be a Star Wars droid. Yeah. Or I mean, just from, from the side, it's like a little stylized duck. You know, it's like oh, a yeah. duck bill in the head and the yeah. thing. Very nice. Well, pictures, as always, on the on the site if you want to have a look at the voting machine. But I thought this was a nice finale, a bit of voting for you. This is good. It's good. So that's it. That's all I've got for you. This has been an interesting, an interesting different day. Interesting? Yeah. That, that's not something you say when you enjoy something. That's something... Like, to, if your wife came home and had a new haircut and said, what do you think of my new hairstyle? And you said, interesting. You wouldn't say that, I hope. Uh, Would you ever describe are, are, are you Are you asking if I, if I like or if I don't like it? She actually, she she literally just came home last night and asked me about some new lipstick that she was wearing. Did you describe it as interesting? What I said is that I am reserving judgment for the moment, which means that I don't like it immediately, but I might like it later. And she was totally fine with that because she's a reasonable person. Person. I feel like the whole world is divided into things that are either interesting or not interesting, and maybe I use this in a in a different way than most people do it. But interest is something that you can't. You can't control, and you just have or you don't have. And I have found this day very interesting. I think I the, find uh, everything interesting. I don't divide things into two. Everything that, is interesting. That's why to you it sounds like I'm just using some sort of filler word, like oh yeah, whatever. He's just saying interesting. But okay. to me, the the the, the, the opposites of, of interesting are boredom and indifference. It's actually a little triangle. I think is the way that works. Okay. So I would say this is interesting All because right. I have been interested in the things that you have brought forward. I think you've done an excellent job at, at selecting stuff to look at. Well, all the thanks goes to Keith Moore and the people in the library at the Royal Society. Yes. I'm super grateful that they let us do this today in this amazing room. Yeah, I kind of can't believe that you pulled this off. And this, this has happened relatively fast. I mean, you just, you just yeah. like tossed the idea out that just a great. couple of days ago and said, oh, maybe we can do this. And it feels like shoo-am, lightning, lightning speed. All of a sudden, I'm here, and we're talking yeah, about voting about. machines and flags. Don't and Adelaide. About. We don't mess about. Sorry about the Adelaide section. That was a bit. <laughs> that was a bit self-indulgent. But. I was. <laughs> I swear, there were tears welling up in your eyes. It's when an you were emotional at that thing. Map. It's an emotional thing. Yeah. So, so anyway, I thought we might get some tears with the voting machine, but you managed to remain <laughs> stoic. <laughs> So, um, and thank you to any listeners who persisted with our rather unusual format. It's still two dudes talking, but it's two dudes talking in touching distance. Look, that's me. That's me touching CGP Grey. Yeah, he's touching me right on the hand. I'm, I'm slapping his hand. So I'm going to get some lunch after this, but I need to wash my hands first. Oh, yeah, sorry. I forgot. I should have touched you. Um, <laughs> so we've done two dudes talking in person in an amazing place. And I'm sure, I'm sure next episode will be business as usual and we'll be locked safe, <laughs> safely in our offices. <laughs> doing hour upon hour of follow-up. Yeah. Back to the usual nonsense. 